Hi, and welcome to another episode of Hill Time, coming to you from inside the Beltway. Hill Time is about all the latest happenings in the world of the environment and climate news. And today we have two amazing guests, my colleague Tiffany Pozel and Brian O'Fahey, who both work with me in our Washington, D.C. office. And they focus on issues in, in the SEC world with public companies, helping them navigate all the requirements for reporting and disclosure and governance that they need to be aware of in ensuring that they are dotting their I's and crossing their T's on the legal front. So welcome, Brian and Tiffany. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you. So, uh, Tiffany, why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice, and then we'll shift over to Brian, and then we'll have a conversation about a really late-breaking news story from last week on the SEC disclosure proposed regulation. So, Tiffany, tell us a little bit about your practice. Perfect. Thank you. So, as you mentioned, I'm a partner in the D.C. office of Hogan Levels. I am a member of the firm Securities and Public Company Advisory Group. So I serve as regular outside securities and corporate governance counsel to public companies and their boards. And prior to joining Hogan, I served in various capacities uh, in the SEC's Division of Corporation Finance for over seven years, uh, including with uh, a few rulemaking projects. So I've been following you know, the climate change proposal pretty closely. Uh, I think this was of interest to many people. So I'm interested and looking forward to our discussion today. Great. Thanks, Tiffany. And Brian, tell us a little bit about your work. Thanks, Tiffany. Well, I'm Brian O'Fahey. I'm also a partner here in our Washington, D.C. office. And like Tiffany, I work in our public company advisory practice, uh, focusing on securities law and corporate governance. I also do some M&A as well. And my practice is mostly focused on kind of mid-cap and smaller cap companies, particularly more in the life sciences space, but across different industries. And so my perspective is a little bit more colored from the standpoint of kind of the smaller companies and the, the issues that, that those types of companies face, as opposed to our larger clients who often are a little bit more ahead on these types of issues. And on a personal level, I've, I've been very interested in climate change for you know several decades and have kind of felt this to be just kind of the, among many important issues of our time, the one that for me kind of is the greatest existential risk and one that I've always been interested in kind of integrating to my practice. So this initiative by the SEC has been one that I've been watching closely for the last you know year or 15 months. And I think last week's release was one that we've all been anticipating for quite a while. So it's it's been a lot to absorb. Yes. And I'm always a fan of when the environmental lawyers can go out and, and mingle and chat with other folks in the corporate realm, uh, which is a really nice uh, pairing and opportunity where our two uh, areas of practice intersect in a, in a really interesting way. So yeah, last week, the SEC announced the long-awaited proposed rule on climate disclosures. So what, what are your thoughts and reactions? Is there anything in there that you found surprising or of significance? Uh, of course, lots of folks have been reporting on it, providing summaries of what the rule says. I'd love to know kind of what your, your thinking is in terms of something that folks might not know about the rule or that you thought was surprising or interesting and of note. So, Tiffany, I'll start with you. Sure. 
So I think, I mean, I'll just say scope three emissions. Um, and I think a lot of the commentary regarding the role has focused on scope three emissions. I think many folks knew and, ex, you know, knew that it was on the table or in the realm of possibilities and that the, the staff was considering um, whether companies should be required to disclose their scope three emissions. So that it landed in the proposal is not too surprising. However, I think the discussion around materiality and the proposal is extremely interesting. And the way I would characterize it is that, you know, obviously the proposal or the proposed rules are that scope three emission disclosure would be required only if material or if the company has set an emissions target or goal that includes scope three emissions. But from my perspective, the tension is that in order to determine materiality, a company would presumably have to collect all of the requisite scope three data in order to make that determination. And that itself is where the extensive work and burdensome cost come in. And then when discussing materiality, the release acknowledges and cites to various uh, studies indicating the relative magnitude of scope three emissions and what that means for registrants and the materiality. And then it also, you know, there's a couple of statements in there, one of which effectively says, if a registrant determines its scope three emissions are not material and therefore not subject to disclosure, that information itself may be useful to investors. In other words, it may be useful for investors to understand the basis for their determination it's not material. Mm-hmm. So from my perspective, that's it's it's highly unusual for the staff to require disclosure about why something isn't material. No, and while that's not yeah, explicitly stated in the release, I think when you read between the lines or even just it, it's it's implied and there's a lot of discussion about how given the relative magnitude of scope three emissions that you know it seems they're effectively saying it will be material for many registrants. So that to me was was a bit of a surprise. And yeah. I think it's a lot of folks are focusing on. Exactly. And I think it's super interesting, too, because it kind of creates this interesting conundrum or paradigm for companies, which is, one, if you say it's not material, well, then is that saying your company doesn't have a significant climate impact, you know, generally, like not a lot of scope three downstream upstream emissions, right? Um, that somehow that's not affecting your financial state, Um But then on the flip side, those companies that are reporting scope three already, for instance, has that they have targets, that doesn't necessarily mean they might have big impacts on the scope three side, but it could show that they're, you know, being uh, fastidious about how they're keeping track of their climate impacts, right? And then there can also be like, you know, other classes that are viewed as having really heavy scope three emissions and being big contributors to the climate change and, oh, look, they're the ones who have to do scope three. So it's creating like these weird categories of companies, uh, perhaps inadvertently. That's right. Yeah. So we'll see how that kind of plays out in practice and how companies kind of explain, right, where they're at on scope three and why. So Brian, how about you? What do you think was kind of Uh, new or unexpected or interesting from your vantage point? Yeah, so the the issue that I've been most interested in and was kind of waiting to see was 
Essentially, how would the staff position these rules to have staying power? The SEC is an agency that has five commissioners, and the way that it, it acts is that three of the five commissioners have a majority and implement rule. And the way that the, that the commissioners are appointed, essentially the, the party in control of the White House has the ability to appoint three of the five commissioners. So obviously when Joe Biden won the election in 2020, we knew that we were going to have an opportunity for more progressive policymaking in the SEC. And this is an area that I think progressive policymakers have been focused on for quite a while. And of course, one of the realities of climate change legislation is that the only means for progressives really to pass legislation right now is through reconciliation. Mm-hmm. In Congress, right. And that's a, that, and that's a means that gives them a, a much more limited toolkit than you would have with legislation. Obviously, that would require a filibuster approved majority or in this case, if you even imagined a willingness to eliminate the filibuster, kind of the, you know, Christine Cinema, Joe Manchin type legislation that's tailored to, 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 to those um, senators. So the point I'm making here is that I think for progressives, you know, using agency power during the Biden administration is something that has been a, you know, an area of focus because there's a practical ability to really implement some policy changes that right now probably don't exist through Congress. And I think you know, so you have to look at this proposal from that standpoint. And I think you could say in some respects, this is sort of a once in a generation opportunity for progressives through different agencies to kind of address climate change in a way that it hasn't been addressed, you know, certainly for the last or really ever right in, in, in the past. And so that was kind of the fact that this would be a very sweeping proposal, very ambitious was something that was telegraphed. The fact that I think it would be drafted in a way that was almost from the get-go tailored to get a three to two vote. That's something that I think we all expected in reading the proposal. It certainly feels like that's what they've done here. And I guess the question to me is, is, is kind of strategically, how would they make this proposal, I don't want to say immune, but less subject to being revoked later after a change in administration or otherwise subject to court challenge? So that was kind of the framework that I was looking at what they would do. I think, as Tiffany said, when you look at the actual things that they have included. A lot of this is kind of what we expected, but there certainly were things that were surprising, like scope free emissions and the way that that was addressed with materiality. There's a particular item that, 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 that would require companies to disaggregate the effects of climate on certain line items in their financials. That's something that I never would have envisioned, and I'm, I'm still having trouble understanding mm-hmm. how that practically. But I think to me, the bigger question that I'm wondering is really, will these rules have staying power and will they last a change in administration? And, and, you know, 10 years from now, is this proposed rule going to be what the rules look like? I think it's very likely that the final rules that are approved probably at the end of this year will look very similar to these proposed rules, because I think these pretty clear to me that that the three, you know, progressive commissioners of all through speeches over the last 12 months telegraphed these um, general kind of parameters. And I think this is very much in line with what they were looking for. So to me, it's more a question of the, the kind of articulation of how you justify these, these rules. And, and what I found to be a little bit surprising was that it feels like the staff here has kind of gone out of its way to make the proposals its own kind of standalone climate regime, as opposed to making as much of an effort to integrate these concepts into existing rules. And the other thing, as Tiffany kind of talked about, you know, our, our federal securities laws are a principles-based 
regime that is really focused on materiality and kind of what information is material to investors in making investment decisions. And I do feel like that the rules in some respects don't make as strong an effort to kind of position the justifications from that more historical framework, you know, as much as they could have. And so I do think that they, that the, that the proposal here maybe plays a little bit into the hands of opponents in terms of being one that can be attacked as looking a little bit more, you know, politically driven or one that doesn't fit within the historical kind of framework of what the SEC typically does, or at least how they justify what they do. So that would be my kind of overall high level thought about it. And again, I'm looking at this and, you know, to kind of full disclosure of, of biases as somebody who, you know, has been excited about this project because on a personal level, I do think that there's a real need to enhance the securities laws to have more disclosure in these areas. And so I, I think I personally support a lot of the, the actual proposals included here. And it's more a question of making sure that those proposals actually can be justified and 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 not look like an overreach with the Ooh. SEC trying to kind of backdoor into looking like it's really the EPA. And that's I think one of the the criticisms that that the you know Republican appointed commissioners have made. And I, right. I feel like that there could have been a better job on parts of this in in making a better attempt to kind of justify these as as explaining why this information is material to investors as opposed to kind of explaining why it's good policy. Mm, interesting. Yeah, and I, I saw that I think one of the commissioners said, we are not the Securities and Environment Commission. Right. <laughs> and it made me think of when I was at Interior, we were uh, regulating methane emissions from oil and gas on public lands. And th that was challenged in court, that regulation. And we lost in the district court because they said Interior Department you know, you have the authority to lease oil and gas on public lands, but you don't have the authority to regulate methane, right? That's EPA. And then EPA is having challenges regulating uh, greenhouse gas emissions in their power plant rule, as we all know with the Supreme Court case. And then here we're having executive entity, the SEC, getting into environmental policy. So what's what's your sense of uh, to your point of could they have done a better job or clarified more in that SEC rubric? The reason for this rule is because of its materiality. Uh, certainly the institutional investor community is pushing for this. And in a court case, DOJ is going to say, yes, it is material. Look, investors are saying we care about this and we do think it affects your bottom line. What do you all think about and how would you advise cl clients? Uh, the rule is probably going to come out in December or thereabouts. Should they be making changes to adapt to this new rule? And is your prediction on how litigation is going to proceed informing what you're telling clients about how much you should really start thinking about making that shift to comply with the rule, even if it is challenged. So Tiffany, I'll, I'll start with you on that question. Sure. There's a lot there. Yeah. So in terms of <laughs> maybe we start with sort of the timing and the rulemaking process, because while the release and Brian may have a different view, but while the release sort of points to this hypothetical December timeline for final rules, yeah. I'm a little skeptical. Uh, I think it's quite possible that the rulemaking effort slips into 2023. And I say that because 
The comment period is obviously open now. It's a roughly, let's say roughly 60 day comment period. And I expect, you know, given the degree to which various market participants and other stakeholders were anxiously awaiting for this proposal, and also, you know, gauging by the lengthy statements made by the various commissioners when these rules were proposed, I expect significant, significant commentary on the proposal. And so when the comment period ends, the staff has to take those comments into consideration and evaluate them before they actually draft the final rule proposal and responses for the commissioners to consider. And at that point, the commissioners have to consider sort of the proposed final rules. They may engage in additional conversations with market participants, seek to collect additional information. I think that process in itself, just evaluating the comments and the proposed responses to those comments in terms of revisions to the proposed rules or not, will take a significant amount of time. Once, you know, even once we get to the point that the the rules are finalized and even adopted, as you alluded to, we all expect there to be legal challenges in court. I think the legal challenges will include, you know, undoubtedly questioning the SEC's authority, effectively going beyond their sort of investor protection mandate, you know, First Amendment challenges as well. And and that could, depending on the specific challenges and the approach taken there, that could certainly delay the effectiveness of the rules. But setting that aside, I do think even if you anticipate the final rules being delayed, whether by legal challenge or otherwise, I do think clients and companies have to start thinking about their approach to some of these issues now. There there are pieces of this rulemaking effort that will undoubtedly stick and that and that companies will have to address at some point. So when I'm what I'm thinking about in terms of what you know companies can start to do today. I think absolutely taking a fresh look at any emissions targets and goals. I, it, you know, investors and other regulators are already asking for more information about those emissions targets and goals. You know, how are, what is your plan to achieve those goals? Uh, what progress have you made towards those goals? Those are things that companies, you know, can and should start thinking about today. I think addressing and taking a fresh look at internal controls and procedures with respect to the emissions data you are collecting and start to think about which parts of the proposed rules would be most burdensome and the related sort of time commitment or lead time needed to address those. And I think companies can start chipping away at those, even if the rules are not adopted as proposed. Again, I think, I think, Parts of them will stick around and companies can absolutely start to take actions today uh, in order to better better position themselves for, for the final product. Yeah, definitely. And, and I do think there are these market forces out there. There's the global dynamics um, that are going around coming out of Glasgow. Uh, you know, I, I think independent to a certain extent of where the U.S. will be and is now. Um, so there are a lot of other dynamics going on with also stakeholder engagement, like expectations of their cons- consumers, right, and expectations of their shareholders and it, different show, shareholder views, right? Um, before it was kind of focused on the financial return, but it seems like some shareholders are 
having different expectations. And, and it does seem like scope one and two it is a bit of a focus, right? And may have more of that connectivity to what investors might be interested in on a materiality front as opposed to scope three. So Brian, Brian, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I guess a couple of things. First of all, just going back to your question, you talked about kind of the, uh, you know, investors wanting this information, kind of going back to the justifications for it. You know, one of the interesting things is that I think that you have two things happening here. You have certain investors that want information because they want to invest in companies that they perceive as being, you know, low emitters or, or companies that kind of share their moral perspective mm-hmm. in terms of how they're addressing climate change, this kind of notion of socially conscious investing. And that's something that the staff has definitely been considering and looking at, for example, how mutual funds that market themselves that way, you know, is there a regulatory framework to make sure that those funds actually do what they say? But there's definitely a, a lot of investors that that have a perspective of wanting to invest, not just for the you know, sake of making the most money or looking for the best investment opportunities, but actually having kind of a moral component, you know, investing consistent with their values, right? And I think that to a certain extent, I feel like the staff here has tailored some of the rules with that as a justification that there's a group of investors out there that are looking for information about climate-related effects, for in particular emissions, from that standpoint, as opposed to that investors or kind of reasonable investors necessarily need all of this information to implement their investment thesis. And so my own perspective is that the latter of those two is a better way to position the rules for future court challenge and making them less likely to be overturned. Because I think you can make a good case that the current disclosure regime and the more principles-based, materiality-based regime that we have doesn't really elicit good disclosure regarding the risks and opportunities that companies have related to climate. And so whatever your, your, your personal thesis is from an investor standpoint in terms of if you think that climate is a greater issue than the market anticipates or a lesser issue. It's tough to look at companies and really understand who the winners and losers might be. So from my own perspective, that's a framing of the issue here that I think would be easier to justify and more in the kind of historical SEC mandate framework Mm -hmm. as opposed to saying that investors want the information, Mm -hmm. which I think is a dangerous way to position it because lots of investors might have, you know, idiosyncratic issues that they care about from a moral standpoint, but we don't require that information to be disclosed just because certain investors care about it, right? So I think that that was the what I was kind of alluding to in terms of kind of how I think some of the proposals are explained in the release. And I think they could have done a little bit of a better job mm-hmm. kind of insulating some of that. Now, to the, to the larger point, though, in terms of what companies should be doing and kind of where we're at. I think it's important to note that this proposal comes on the heels of kind of a global movement towards mm-hmm. disclosure in these areas, as well as a lot of private ordering where, you know, companies are, are you know, in the U.S., we have boards of directors subject to election each year. And one of the things that companies always respond to is director election votes. No, no director wants to be either not getting reelected or to have a perception of being unpopular with their shareholder base. And so one of the things that's happened in the last few years is that ESG metrics and kind of climate in particular have become more important and kind of getting in, in, sort of part of that framework that, that, that directors are being evaluated by. And so I think a lot of companies have been responding to this private ordering 
by having more disclosure for that reason. So even without the SEC rules, mm-hmm. I think that's happening now. And you know, to a certain extent, these rules, in a, in, in to a, you know, a, a very significant degree, kind of implement the existing TCFD framework that a lot of companies had already been kind of shifting towards. And I think that companies that are doing that are companies that haven't yet. I think it still makes sense to continue to kind of look at that TCFD framework, which has more generic disclosure principles and to be responsive to that. Because I think that the private ordering that exists today is already looking for that. And I think that the more the area that I think is more contentious here are some of these you know prescriptive disclosure requirements around, you know, again, the kind of line item effects of, of climate on financial statement items, the attestation and assurance regarding climate related kind of financial metrics and then the scope one, two, and three emissions data. I think that's all an area that is to be determined if it has staying power. So I think that I think any, any, any company right now should be definitely focusing on continuing to enhance their climate disclosures and the governance of all of these issues. And I think regardless of what happens with these rules in the long term, that private ordering isn't going to change. We're going to have continuous investor demand for disclosure in these areas. And so I don't think that companies should be too focused on kind of what happens with the rules as much as just continue in those directions, you know, and, and whatever the rule ultimately looks like, there's, there's pretty generous phase-ins regarding some of these elements. And so I think there's time for companies to really kind of get their ducks in a row on some of the more onerous parts of the proposal. And I think what they should be doing in the short term is really making sure that they're kind of going after the kind of governance parts of this, that they can make sure that they're you know, getting fully built up and stood up in 2022. And then they can turn to the to the more complex parts around, again, you know, assurance and some of the, you know, greenhouse gas emissions data um, in due course as those rules are a little bit more developed and it's clear kind of what other companies are doing and what the final rules look like and if the final rules will have staying power. Right. Absolutely. There seems like there's a lot of different forces at play and regardless of whether the rule withstands challenge or not. And so companies need to be thinking about that. It's also interesting to think about what motivates investors, right? And making some assumptions that there might be some kind of moral authority view on climate might might not be, you know, something that's motivating all investors. There's a lot of different uh, idiosyncratic influences on investors. So from an APA standpoint, like what's the basis for the rule and how is it, you know, really anchored in the the authorizing statute uh, in the SEC realm is an interesting question. Like how far can that go? So I'm going to wrap up. We're we're almost out of time here with with just one last question in terms of uh, governance, which is where, where you all practice day in and day out. Any thoughts about what boards should be thinking about vis-a-vis this rule in terms of does it make sense to have someone on the board with some ESG environmental background or to have one of the committees kind of consider this um, as part of their charter with, with or without the rule because there are some uncertainties there of what might survive challenge and changes in administration. So, so what do you advise your clients on that and, and give it to me in like two minutes so we can wrap up here and, but we'd love to hear your high level thoughts on um, governance. So go ahead, Tiffany. Sure. Happy to. So I think a lot of large companies have, have, have already sort of started with this initiative in the sense that 
they have already considered and or added, let's say, whether it's climate or just general ESG expertise to their boardroom. And they've also given some thought as to uh, committee charters and structure and which committees, um, you know, whether it's one or multiple committees should be focused on ESG issues. So I think a lot of companies have already um, started thinking along those lines. I think it's important to continue to assess that and figure out if, if, if that dynamic is working, you know, thinking in terms of how frequently should the board and management or the specific committee that's delegated authority and the broader board um, be having conversations about these issues and really just the general oversight of these issues, including the broader ESG issues that we often discuss. So I think it's important. I think they should continue, you know, with, without regard to the direction that the, the particular rules take or with, without being too concerned of where they may end up with the final rules. I think, I think, you know, companies will continue and sort of stay the course in that regard. Yeah. And it seems like it's just kind of becoming part of the, the agenda and portfolio of items to talk about of importance for boards, just given the current discourse. Um, how about you, Brian, your thought? Yeah, well, you know, there's in, in the last few years, there's been more and more kind of ESG rankings that have been promulgated by different private groups. So in the yeah. U.S., ISS and Glass-Lewis, which are the two big proxy advisory firms now, score companies on ESG metrics and, and in part on their climate-related disclosures. And so as Tiffany was saying, I think that that companies already are, are kind of looking at this from a governance standpoint and making sure that they've got the right committees empowered. And I think every company is different because I think large and small cap companies are often in a very different place today mm-hmm. where they're at. And so I think you have to look at kind of where you're starting from. But I think every company can make progress on kind of increasing its governance framework for addressing these issues, increasing its internal competency, looking at the way that its internal controls and disclosure controls relate to climate and then also looking at the industry-specific elements of this. So one of the things that I think you'll see as a trend here is that as these rules get fleshed out into more practical disclosures, is that what those disclosures look like are going to vary significantly by industry. Yeah. Because the, because the particular types of climate risks are very dependent on the, on the nature of a business and the industry. There's an international group that's been recently stood up by the IFRS Foundation called the International Sustainability Standards Board, and they've recently published prototypes that have kind of industry-specific you know, explanations and kind of brainstorming of the types of things that in different industries might be relevant when you look at climate from a risk and opportunity standpoint. I think that companies should definitely start fo- you know, focusing on those kind of industry-specific elements and start to kind of think through what that disclosure might look like. I think a lot of that work, whatever these rules ultimately look like, will be work that's not wasted and it will be relevant to ultimate disclosures in these areas. And I think that, again, regardless of, instead of thinking of this as really complying with a regulatory regime, I would think of this as really right now an area where private ordering is mm-hmm. kind of rating companies and those ratings are, are filtering into director election votes. And I think, so I think any work you do in this can improve those scores, mm. you know, make your board of directors happy that they're getting a good mark. Mm-hmm. I think every board doesn't like to get negative scores and they don't like to have things that ultimately affect voting by shareholders. So I think that, that, that that's what I would continue to focus on. The rules will get sorted out in due course. And I think any work you do in those areas and kind of, you know, really looking at the more voluntary 
regimes is work that will ultimately translate to the to, to, you know to the ultimate SEC rules as they come into you know come into effect. And I think so. The, the key, I think, really is just building up that internal expertise and just kind of taking it in in chunks. And then I think companies that do that will have less work to do in 2023 and 24 as these rules come into effect. Right. It's a process. And it's also uh, important to know what your peers are doing in your particular sector, for sure. Um, there, there are unique standards for each sector that um, folks should be aware of. Um, so great. Well, we're at time. It was so wonderful to have a chat with both of you. Uh, you are uh, just incredible colleagues, and I'm so thrilled to be able to be working with you more on these issues uh, here at Hogan Levels. And uh, we look forward to having future chats with all of you. Um, we'll check in again, uh, see where we're at uh, in a couple of months. And uh, until then, this is a wrap for Hill Time. Thank you, Tiffany and Brian. And we'll speak to you all soon. Take care.